Hi. Um, do take up your Bibles if you've got them to hand. Uh, we're going to come to look at God's Word. And spend a bit of time trying to understand, okay, we've just said the creed together, I believe. What do we believe in? Who do we believe in? And we're going to look at that a little bit more. That's what we love to do here at this church. And we do that by looking at his word. Um, that is the Bible. So uh, as Mark mentioned, we're going through the series in Genesis, looking at the life of Abraham. Um, and that's what we're doing here. And we're here today at Genesis chapter 15. It's Genesis chapter 15. That's where we're at t- today. So if you take your Bibles up, I'm going to read through. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years... Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Cadanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Great. Let's pray together and ask God to help us as you come to his word. Father, help us to come before you now to nourish, be nourished by your word. Father, help us in our hearts, with our ears, with our eyes, to hear you, to gaze upon you, to see the goodness of you as we see your goodness unfold in the life of Abraham, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just realized, if you haven't met me before, I haven't introduced myself. I'm I'm Mike. I'm one of the leaders here. uh, And I'm going to look at this passage together uh, this afternoon um, to try and help us understand what is going on here. It's a little bit weird, isn't it? There's these animals being cut up and all this stuff. So to help us think about it, um, I thought I'd start with some one-hit wonders. Ever thought about one-hit wonders? This is going to show up my age. Uh, A song called Mbop. Does anybody know a song called Mbop? 
So some people, a generation do. Maybe the younger generation. All right, let's, let's, let's try another one. Uh, if I say Jeremy Lin, any idea, Jeremy Lin? Ah, oh, some of the Americans. So Jeremy Lin was this Taiwanese-American basketball player who played for the New York Knicks, and for one season, he was absolutely incredible. And the whole of, well, clearly not the whole world, the whole of America went insane, and they called it Linsanity. And then he had one season, and he disappeared. And no one ever heard of him again. There's Jeremy Lin. That's a one-hit wonder. All right, okay, let's try it. Let's try another one. Um, the tokens. Anyone ever heard of the tokens? See, no one knows. Oh, this is going really well. Okay, if I go, I win my way, I win my... Does everyone know? Yes, that's the tokens. They sang that song. One Hit Wonders. They sang that one song. Everyone knows it. No idea who the tokens are. And this is why, okay, this is why I'm starting with this. Because when you see a One Hit Wonders, you kind of think, are they actually really any good? Like you hear the song Macarena and you're like, oh, that's a cool song that everyone sings even today. But could they actually really sing? Why have they just got one hit and then they disappear? Here's a question. Does that sometimes feel like your faith journey at times? Do you have those moments when you feel like your faith is so strong, but then there are those times when you wonder, how can I know for sure? I admit that at times for me as well. And you might be thinking, oh, he's a pastor of a church. Get him out of here. But I take heart when I read this passage from Abraham because it's not just me. It's not just us that feels that way, but Abraham does here too. Do you remember where Abraham was at last week? Genesis chapter 14, he had the highs of victory, the juggernaut of Kedorlaomer, this king who was coming and wiping out everybody, defeated by Abraham and 318 men and his nephew Lot rescued. He's then blessed by Melchizedek, the priest king of God. And Abraham then confesses, oh God, you are the Lord most high in, in Genesis 14, 22. His, his faith seems so strong. This king of Sodom comes over and he says, oh, I'll give you all this stuff. And what does Abraham say? I will accept nothing belonging to you, king of Sodom. God is my king. He is my one true source of blessing. And you're thinking at that moment, it doesn't get any better than this. Abraham's there now. His faith is so good. It's like you've been on a mission trip or maybe a student weekend away. Something similar where you come back and you're just buzzing going, yes, God, God the most high. And you feel like you can move mountains with your faith. Don't you just wish it could be like that forever? That it would be so simple. You could just switch it on and go, yes, my faith is so good. But here's the reality. After this, Abraham looks around him. He's seen how great God is, but then he looks around and he sees a problem. He remembers what God promised him in Genesis chapter 12, and he looks around and he still has no son, no heir. He still has no land. And all of a sudden, questions start coming back into his mind. Doubts start to creep in again. We've seen this before with Abraham, haven't we? Back in Genesis 12, just after the promise, famine strikes, and what does he do? He runs off to Egypt to seek promises elsewhere. And I love this because we're traveling with Abraham and this ebb and flow with his journey of faith with God. Because it's sort of, we sort of get there, don't we? I'm pretty sure all of us have been there, or maybe you're there this afternoon. You can remember a time when you were so sure of your faith in God, but you're sitting here today beginning to ask that question, how can I be, how can I know for certain of God's promises? So maybe you're here for the first time just exploring, oh, who is this Christian God that my friends are into? And you're starting to ask that same question too. How can I know for sure? 
How can these people around me know for sure? See, here's the thing. As human beings, I think when things feel secure and certain, when things are going really well, our minds, our hearts, our gaze is fixed on that thing that gives us that security. But the human tendency is that when that thing or that person begins to waver, our gaze begins to wander. Maybe that's why you're here. Because the career you were promised isn't all that you thought. Or the people you relied upon have let you down. Maybe that's your wondering if there's something in this God that Christians believe in. See, for us Christians, we see God. We hear his promises and our gaze is fixed on him. But when the famines come, when the pressure squeeze and the culture pulls, our gaze can begin to wander. Either our gaze starts to shrink when we are once looking up and, and around and to, to all the things that God's promised. But the circumstances and the pressures starts to make our viewing circle get smaller and smaller and smaller. Or our gaze shifts. Our gaze starts to shift to that land that looks better. There seems to be more promise there with that sort of lifestyle, with those sorts of milestones and definitions of success and progress. Or our gaze shifts to those people over there, the sort of people that have more influence, more followers, who seem like they might bring about greater blessing if I trust in them. The pharaohs, the Kedolaomas, the kings of Sodom of the world, who draw us away from God. Do you remember when Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the garden? Their gaze falls upon this fruit. And what does it say? The fruit was good for, for food and pleasing to the eye. Their gaze shrinks to this fruit and then shifts away from the promise of God. There are these things constantly in our world trying to pull and capture our gaze, to make our gaze shrink inwards or to make it shift away from God's promises. And as those things start to wear on us, like water dripping on a rock, we eventually start to show up as cracks in our face. And we begin to ask that question, how can I know for sure? How can I know for sure that this Christian stuff is worth it? That trusting in God is the right thing? That is a question that's beginning to weigh on Abraham's heart here. And I want us to come away from this passage feeling more certain about our faith. Even if your faith feels pretty good right now, I want us to come away even surer as we see this exchange between God and Abraham. Now this passage, I don't know if you noticed, but this passage is set up in two halves. They're parallel to each other. You'll notice in each of the two halves, it starts with God declaring who he is. Abraham then asks a question and then God responds to show us something. And here's the first thing that God wants to show us. Look up. Look up. Let me show you what, what he means. Verse 1, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. The vision here doesn't mean some sort of cool dream. It's a word that is used for prophetic revelation. So God is speaking through Abraham to us. And we need to listen to it carefully. And look at God's first declaration in verse 1. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. How many times do we hear God say that to his people? Do not be afraid. Trust me. It's okay. You're safe with me. If you stay with me, don't go anywhere else. I'm watching over you. He often says this when he's reminding his people of who he is and his promises to them. And has God not shown this to Abraham already? Once when Abraham was stuck in trouble down in Egypt in chapter 12. More recently when he was facing a battle with Kedor Leoma, God has shown Abraham pretty clearly that I am your shield. I'm protecting you and your wife and the promise, so don't worry. And he goes on. Your very great reward. 
or you could say your reward will be great. That's another way to translate it. Either it's that God is the reward or God will make them great. God is a source of blessing for Abraham. The king of Sodom offered something that cannot compare to what God has. So God is declaring to Abraham, look, remember me, remember who I am. It's all good. Just trust me. Stay with me. I'm protecting you and I will reward you. That is what I've promised. But then Abraham begins to doubt. Just like we can. When we felt so good after a, a really good quiet time or you hear a good sermon and we think, yes, God, he is our shield. I know that. He is the God of blessing. But the world squeezes and our gaze starts to shrink. We start facing challenges as our health fails, as the culture pulls on our hearts. It starts to say, is God really good? Is he really your shield? Alongside that, you have Satan constantly whispering on ear, did God really say? And here's something you need to understand from this. Doubting and questioning is okay. It happens in the Christian life. There's nothing, that's nothing you need to feel guilty about. Abraham, described as a great man of faith in Hebrews 11, he's doubting right now. It's so important for us to see that as Christians, asking questions is so important and so good. Christianity is not just a blind faith, as a lot of people tend to think it is. The key is, what do you do when those doubts start to arise? I've got a mate of mine who lives um, down by the beach, and he loves to surf. And um, then he found this thing called a hoverboard, which is basically a surfboard with a little kind of propeller thing on it. So even when the surf's on there, he can jump on and get out to sea. And he found this really cheap deal on one of those apps, like it's called Wish or something. You might know of it. Um, yeah, some people do, clearly do know of it. And it says it's coming from China, and the delivery time is any time between 14 to 40 days. It's quite a big window. And he said, oh, I'll order it. So he ordered it. He's showing us, showing his neighbors, oh, it's going to come. I can't wait to get onto the sea. A week goes by, still nothing. Two weeks go by, still nothing. Three, still no sign. I still asked, 30 days later, a month later, I was like, mate, have you seen it yet? I was like, no, I still haven't heard anything. It's not like Amazon where you get tracking. You have no idea where this thing has gone. So he has two options here. He can either assume it's lost and give up, or he can ask. He can find out where it's gone. See, do you remember a few weeks ago when Abraham was caught in this famine, what did he do? He assumed. He assumed that the promise wasn't there, and he said that he could find the promises elsewhere in Egypt. And that got him into a right old mess. But I love this. With Abraham, we see him growing, taking step by step. His faith in God is growing. How different is his response this week? As doubts begin to enter his mind, Abraham doesn't assume this time, but he asks. That is a part of the Christian faith. We ask, we go to God. He comes to God the Most High and asks him in verse 2, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? It's a very obvious situation. He's got this grand view of God the Most High. Abraham remembers the promise, but his gaze has started to shrink because he looks back to his tent and he sees his wife Sarah there, but the seat next to her is empty. There is no son. There is no heir. And they're not getting any younger. Doubts are starting to creep in. Then Abraham's gaze begins to shift. He starts to think, okay, how could this promise be fulfilled? The tradition at that time was if you don't have a natural son or an heir, you needed to have somebody come in from outside to be the heir of the household. So his gaze naturally shifts to Eliezer of Damascus, one of his servants. 
God, is this the option? Is this what you mean by your promise? How can I know for sure? And here's God's response. Look up. Look up because I am promising you something beyond your imagination. See, God begins in verse 4 by reminding Abraham of his promise. No, what I meant is what I meant. My I will means I will. It's not what you think. Be patient because I will give you a son for sure as an heir who literally will come out of your belly, out of your loins, will be your own flesh and blood. But then God takes Abraham outside. Verse 5, he says, look up. He lifts Abraham's shrinking and shifting gaze to say, just look, just look. He says, okay, you see me as God the Most High, the Creator God? Well then, do you see the stars that I've made? Count them, go on, count them. Can you really count them? There are far too many, aren't there? Well, I who made the stars this way will make your offspring this way. You're not going to be able to count them. Abraham's gaze is lifted from the empty seat at his tent to a heavenly room filled with bright shining stars that is beyond anything Abraham could have imagined. Notice though, his situation hasn't changed. God doesn't suddenly give him a child. Abraham still has to wait. But what has changed is the clarity of God's promise. He now has this visual picture of what God is promising for him. About five years ago, six years ago, before we had kids, my wife and I, we, mulled, we toyed with the idea of buying a dog. Now, I know you, some of you don't like dogs, so just replace that with a pet that you like. Um, but this is, we found out about the process. So what you do is you, you write to the breeder, you've got to pay a deposit, and you sign all these documents, and then they say, okay, we'll get in touch when, when the dogs are ready. And then you're waiting. You have no idea when it's going to happen. Until one day, this email arrives, and there's this ultrasound of the dog, and you can see little puppies in there. And one of those puppies is promised to be yours. There is that visual reminder of the promise. Nothing's changed. I don't have it yet. And we, we, we never did. But, it's, um, <laughs> but it just clarifies the picture of the promise. A promise that goes beyond anything Abraham could have ever imagined. Now we've got to make, verse 6 is, is a really key verse. We need to, to try and understand what this is saying. We need to see that the promise doesn't come because Abraham is a righteous man. God doesn't tell him to look up and see the stars because Abraham has lots to offer God in return or because he's done and said the right things. In fact, the sinful state of our hearts means that we are naturally drawn to turn our gaze away from God. Abraham's shown us that before. See, we are not Christians because we are more righteous than other people. Paul states that in Romans 3.21, there is nobody righteous, not even one. This is why verse 6 is foundational to the Christian faith. Because Paul explains it as he goes further in Romans 4. He repeats this passage, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. See, as God gives this promise, all Abraham can do, all Abraham needs to do, is trust the promise that God has made. This is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's all about what we believe and not what we do. That's why we declare, as we say in the creed, I believe in God. That is what Abraham is showing us. See, when there is a pull to draw our gaze away from God, God says, look, look up, look up, and just see my promise and trust in me. That is exactly what Abraham does. And here's where we need to be really careful. 
God crediting our faith as righteousness is not dependent on how you feel about your faith at that point in time. There's a danger that we think, my faith is really good when it feels strong. That's when the promises are true. But when my faith feels weak, the promises aren't true anymore. And when we look across the room and we see others who seem so alive in their faith, you look at them and you wonder, am I a Christian at all? But let me remind you, Abram was given the promise, and here he is asking out of doubt. He's the one asking, look, how can I know for sure, God? It's not dependent on how strong your faith is, how you feel at that point in time. It depends on how you look up, see God's promise, and believe as Abram does. So here's a question for us this afternoon. Where is your gaze today? Have you found your gaze has shrunk because of your circumstances? Are life's pressures making you look inward at all the things that are going wrong and making you wonder, is God really the shield that he says he is? His promises don't seem near or clear. Is that making you, your gaze shift away to seek the reward elsewhere? Well, then hear God say to you, look up. Look up and see the promised offspring of Abraham, of Abraham because the same promise continues today, but it's been made even clearer. Because now we can look up to see Jesus, the offspring of Abraham. See, God is fulfilling this promise beyond anything Abraham or we could have imagined in that God the Son will be born in the line of Abraham himself. On a starry night in Bethlehem, there is one star that stands out, that is pointing, where these stargazers from the east, they follow it, they pursue it, they trust it, to come to see the God the Most High, the creator of the universe, born in human flesh in a manger. And there, the promise to Abraham here is confirmed. Just as through one man, God brings about a people born in the flesh through Abraham, so God, through one man, brings about a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, born in the Spirit, through Abraham's offspring, Christ Jesus. If you're sitting here this afternoon, you're asking that question, how can I know for sure? Then look up and see Jesus. See the promised offspring that comes in the flesh to remind us of God's promise time and time again. How can I, how can I know for sure? Keep asking God. And listen to him as he responds through his word, as his spirit guides you to see more of Christ, to see him more clearly, who comes in the flesh to proclaim that message that God is our shield, that with God there will be a great reward for the promised descendants of Abraham. And here's a great thing. His work is continuing today. Look around you and we're placed in a body of, we're placed in a body of believers who are the descendants of this offspring of Jesus, who believe and have life in him. You're not alone. That is why it's so good that we help each other. That's what we're trying to do every Sunday, to remind each other to keep looking up to the promise, to see Jesus. That is what we do when we study together in midweek groups, when we meet up to pray. Why not do that with someone this week? Follow up after this and say, look, let's meet up and let's pray and remind each other of the promises of God. If you're new to all this stuff, if you're not following Jesus yet, and you're asking, how can I know for sure? Then let me suggest that you come and look up and come and see Jesus. Come back next week. Let's read a gospel together. Or go with your friend and read a gospel with them. See Jesus. Look up and see him. And through it, come to see that trusting in Jesus means these promises will be yours as well. 
But the beauty of this passage is that it doesn't stop there. Here's the second of the passage where Abram asks again, how can I be sure, God? How can I know for sure? And this is what God says in the second half. It's all on me. It's all on me. Look at verse 7. Here comes God's declaration again. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Here is God, the God of nations and lands. He says, look, Abram, I pulled you out from Ur, and I've given you this promised land. I'm going to give you this. But Abram's gaze begins to shrink again, because the land isn't his yet. And in this land, there are all these other people. So Abram again asks, verse 8, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? I get that you're going to give me an heir, but where are my offspring going to live? What is God going to say this time? Now, as, we, as I read it, you might have felt the second half is a bit weird. So I need to give you a bit of context about what's going on here. So in those times when two people would come into an agreement, they would document it as a promise, which is often called a covenant. We, we still use that term in the legal world today. But back then, it was usually a promise between a suzerain or a king and a vassal or a servant. So the terms would be, would be made, and then the covenant would be sealed, like they are today when you sign on a dotted line, except back then, the way that was, it was done was through a sacrifice. Pretty glad it's not done today like that. But an animal would be slaughtered, and then the carcass would be cut in two and laid aside. And, if, and, and what happens then is both parties would start to walk between the carcass to say, look, the king would walk through, then the servant would walk through, saying, this covenant is sealed by blood. This is now on me. If I break it, then it's my life. That's the guarantee. I'm signing the dotted line on the carcasses with blood. So that's the context of this setting. So when God calls Abraham to bring a heifer, a goat, and a ram, he's preparing Abraham to set up a covenant. God is saying, look, I'm ready to sign. I make this promise official, so start getting everything ready. Grab your pen and paper or your... Nowadays, you're Adobe and email. And so what does Abraham do? He bumbles off and he goes and grabs these animals. But look at the details here. The animals are significant. Because these are the animals that are used later on throughout the Bible in sacrifice to God. In confirmation of the covenant here for Abraham's offspring. It's a pattern of what is to come. The fact that they're three years old, it seems like that's when the animals were primed for sacrifice. This isn't just an afterthought for God. He's saying, no, go and get the best. I'm serious about this. So Abraham goes and grabs these animals and he cuts them in half, except for the birds. He doesn't because the birds are too small. Again, we see that later on in Leviticus. So Abraham sets this up. Here's the pattern. This is the covenant he's setting up. But before anybody signs on the dotted line, God has to make something really clear. That the journey of faith won't be easy. To see the promise fulfilled, it's not going to be straightforward. The journey will come with opposition and challenge. See, as Abraham waits, you see in verse 11 that these birds of prey come down that Abraham has to fight off. There will be attacks on this promise that will have to be fought off. And then Abraham falls asleep as he waits. Because this promise isn't going to be fulfilled overnight. It will take time. Then in his sleep, this darkness overshadows Abraham in verse 12. Darkness will fall over the promise. It's not going to be straightforward. There will be fear. And in verse 13, we see this immediate context. The birds of prey seem to symbolize the attack that's going to come on Abraham's offspring under Egypt when they'll be enslaved there for 400 years. That is heavy. 
And in verse 13, God says, know for certain that this is going to happen. The journey of faith is not going to be easy. And don't we all sort of get that? We understand that, don't we? How many of you find it easy to be a Christian? We feel the sense of pressure and attack on the promises of God all the time. Our culture today often mocks Christianity and in some cases calls for its influence to be banned. And then we feel that long wait, as the psalmist often says, how long, O Lord? And this is in a country where we have religious freedom. We need to grasp that the journey of faith to see the promises of God fulfilled will never be easy. But one day, one day, you will be in the land that is promised to you, surrounded by the multitude of stars, feasting on the blessings that come from the Lord God Most High into eternity. That is what he promises Abraham. He reminds him of the promise again. But then you can see Abraham asking again, hang on God, I've heard this promise from you before and you're just saying it again, but how can I know for sure that this is going to happen? All you've told me so far is to go and grab a bunch of animals, cut them in half and leave them here. And then you said, my offspring are going to be stuck in this other land for 400 years as slaves. Doesn't sound great to me at the moment. How can I know for sure? And then comes verse 17. When the sun has set, when darkness has come over and it feels like Abraham's overpowered and lost, there comes a smoking firepot, a blazing torch. This represents God, the one who would be the flaming pillar for Abraham's descendants in the desert as he guides them out into salvation. This is God, the very light of life who comes And notice this, God walks between the carcasses, and only God. Abraham doesn't. Do you see what that means? God is saying, look, all of this stuff I've promised to you, all of this stuff I've told you, it's all on me. I'm signing this in blood of this sacrifice. I will make this happen, and it's on me if it doesn't. This is stunning for Abraham to see, for us to see that God is taking sole responsibility for his promise, that he is guaranteeing it. As he makes, literally the word means to cut, as he cuts this covenant, it's a covenant with himself that he would rescue his people and bring them to the land that he has promised, that he would make sure the promise of Abraham will be fulfilled. So when we ask that question, how can I know for sure? Because it's all on him. Imagine after the service today, somebody from church, let, uh, let's take John T. Let's say John T invites us all to go out for a meal. And this isn't like a Tesco's meal deal type. This is like sit down, proper lush meal. It's a really good food place. And imagine we get there and John T says, you know what, tonight's meal, it's all on me. How would you feel? You might start looking for the most expensive thing on the menu. But after that, you start to, you'd be surprised. You'd be grateful, you'd be indebted. What have I done to deserve this? We're always so grateful when, it, when somebody does that to us and says, it's on me, because it's a huge gift for us and it's a huge cost for them. God is not only saying, look up and just trust in my promise, but he's saying, know that this promise is on me. See, verse 16, this weird reference to the Amorites, what it shows is that God is also a God of judgment. For those who stand opposed, the Amorites are those who are the people in Canaan who are opposed to God. 
sinful and lawless. And he says they will be judged when the time is right. God will judge them along with those who get drawn to the sin of the Canaanites, just as Lot was so in danger of doing, as well as those who gaze shift their shift from God to something or someone else, who move away from the promises of God to trust in other things, as well as, well as those who oppress God's people like Pharaoh and Egypt. God is saying, I am also a God who judges. And you see, at one time, all of us were those who were drawn away from God. But Jesus comes to say, look up. Look up and see God's promise once more. How can you know for sure? Because you can look up and see the stars in the sky. God is calling a numerous people to be the offspring of Abraham. So believe it. But not only that, because Jesus would visually come as man in flesh, where he would pay a huge cost to fulfill this promise once and for all. To be offered up as a sacrifice who would seal this covenant once and for all by his body and his blood to say, this is on me and I'm showing you that. Throughout the rest of the Bible, we see Abraham's descendants constantly in danger of violating the terms of the covenant. And yet God the Son comes to say, but it's all on me. I promise this. All you need to do is trust me. That is why Jesus goes to the cross at huge cost. Because God remembers his covenant to say, I will make a people through the seed of Abraham. Despite their rebellion and their threat to violate the covenant, God says, no, it's on me. On my very own son who will come to die for them, who will bear the burden on the promise of his shoulders. He is going to seal this covenant once and for all as a sacrifice by his own blood. That is what God walking among the carcasses points forward to, to this promise being fulfilled through the blood of Jesus. We need to, to tie this all up. But how can we know for sure? Look up and see Jesus, the Son of God who comes to say, it's all on me. Look up and see him on the cross. Behold the Lamb. God knows that we can't keep terms of the covenant. He always knew that. He knows that we can't do that in our own strength. That is why God says it's on me. That's his grace and kindness to us. So as we hear God's promises this afternoon, God is calling us to put our trust in him. Jesus has come bearing this new covenant to say, look at what God has promised here. I'm here to fulfill it. There is nothing you can bring to the table. Just have to trust me as I go to die on the cross for you. My hope is that that will give you assurance today. If you come today swirling in doubt and questions, look up to the cross and see Jesus who says, it's all on me. I'm here for you. Just keep trusting me. My prayer is that it will give you more certain hope. If you're feeling your faith is already in a good place, keep looking to the cross and remember him saying it's all on me, not on you. Don't get proud, but be thankful. And for those who, for, for whom this is new, may it give you more fuel to explore and ask those questions. Look up and come and see Jesus. See who he is. See what it meant when he died on the cross and said it's all on me. Because that includes you if you put your trust in him. And may all of us keep looking to the cross of Christ, to the very offspring of Abraham, to know our hope, our life, and all of God's promises are found in him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray, as you cut this covenant with Abraham, 
as you promised to fulfill this promise to Abraham, that we would look up and see this promise fulfilled in Jesus. To know that he has come, that we would look up and see him there on the cross saying, it's all on me. Father, for those who are in doubt, pray that you would give us that clarity of this promise to keep trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. To know it's all on him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.